welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Dr. Trishan Panch, and he's co-founder and chief innovation officer at Wellframe, and quite simply, Wellframe fixes the two biggest problems with American health insurance, the patient experience, and the rising cost of care. So, Trishan, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Cool. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Trishan? So, I am in snowy uh, Boston, Massachusetts, or like, uh, I guess, more specifically to those geographically specific, I'm in uh, Cambridge, which is Boston split in two. So, it's kind of like North and South London are different cities, which maybe for some people in London they are. <laughs> Excellent. I mean, you can offend a lot of people assuming they're in North or South London. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, so, Trisha, yes, yeah, so it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, yes, really looking forward to this. Obviously, you've yeah. got not an accent that's uh, that's conducive with living in Boston. So, it's going to be interesting to hear about your background and what's led you there. Um, it's also going to be interesting yeah. to hear about you founding a company, taking it to exit. There's all sorts going on um, yeah. in in your story and your background. So, by all means, sir, take us through it. Tell us a bit about your story. So, yeah, so my, uh, I am, uh, I guess, uh, British, Sri Lankan, American. Um, so I'm a citizen of, of three, three countries, so maybe not the most loyal person to call on in, in times of war. But um, my background is, yeah, I was, I was born in Sri Lanka, grew up in England, um, and a fairly kind of traditional, uh, well, I mean, traditional for me, I don't know how traditional it is. It was, it was an, an immigrant story. So my parents and I came over from Sri Lanka um, due to the kind of uh, long-standing conflict uh, that was there and uh, you know we uh, became British I suppose as as many people do right like they kind of move for convenience reasons or safety reasons and then adopt some of the cultural uh, stuff so the accent and a lot of my sensibilities I suppose come from come from London um, Grew up in London, practiced medicine. Uh, I went to Imperial. It was St Mary's at the time, uh, and then when um, practiced medicine in Northwest London, I had a I was a GP in Harlesden. I was a partner there. Really interesting area, and what you know, very uh, similar population to one I grew up in. I grew up in Northwest London as well, um, and I did that for um, about five six years uh, full time, and. Um, the path to doing Wellframe, because that's obviously somewhat separated from uh, from doing Wellframe and what we do, was really, it was actually very much rooted in kind of two insights that I think would be familiar to any clinician, really, uh, but especially anyone in office-based care, as we would call it in, in the UK, or, you know, in, in who has an outpatient clinical role or, or, in, or in general practice, which is that when, if you look at like long-term conditions, chronic conditions, the patients, people like us, are doing most of the work ourselves, and we're typically doing it in between visits, and we're doing it after discharge. You know, we're, it's a kind of long list, of course, but we're uh, figuring out uh, which medications to take, what in our lives we need to change, and if so, are we doing that successfully? Understanding some more stuff about the condition, um, screening or being aware of secondary complications, things that might happen as a consequence of like uh, a condition that someone has, uh, being aware of like the long-term complications of conditions people might have, interfacing with the healthcare system, getting tests. Obviously, even just to say it, it's like a kind of dizzying list. And we expect patients, people, 
to uh, firstly do all that stuff, but secondly, and more absurdly actually, to remember all those things in like three minutes in at the end of like um, a 10 minute consultation, if you're taking the UK model or certainly here in the US, it's probably maybe double that, but still a small number of minutes. And if you look at the amount of consultation time that someone with complex needs, a complex diabetic with ischemic heart disease and depression would have in a year, it's less than two hours. Um, but if you look at like, um, there's a lot of studies that have now been done on multimorbidity, patients have to do at least half an hour of work themselves every single day. So two hours of consultation times for like over 700 hours worth of work that is dependent on those consultations. It basically doesn't make any sense. So, so, so that was my experience. I'm sure it's still lots of people's experience in, um, of, of primary care. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that when people would come back and see you, you'd often have to remind yourself what happened last time, especially if it's like, uh, you know, more than say six months before. Uh, and then you're having to also try and figure out what they've been doing in between that time. And, um, also then after that, what their like problem is today, which may or may not be connected. And it seemed to me that that context, that, that, that context being lost was like a massive inefficiency. So the two things are, one is that um, it's just, it's very clear patients are doing most of the work, but we're, we're kind of expecting them to do it largely unsupervised and it's complicated. And then the second thing is that we don't really know what's going on. So we can only assume every patient is the average patient. Uh, and then give everyone the same thing and then try and figure out within that. So that kind of general approach just clearly is inefficient um, as well. So it was really those two things that led me to thinking about the organization of healthcare services, I suppose, as well as, well as their provision. Um, and um, that, um, in a kind of fairly long arc that was um, uh, led me into technology through public health, but kind of actually how I got there, James, I know you know, your, your listeners, and I think one of the great things about this podcast is you go into kind of some of the, some of the real stuff, I guess, right, like um, of, the, of the founding story. I think my um, real path into that, that's the kind of medical somewhat, um, what's the word? Like, yeah, that's the, that's the kind of somewhat technical path. Into that's it, the paper really, version. What's the real yeah, version? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly. That's the interview answer. So, no, no, indeed. So I think there's really two things, right? So one, uh, like, like many people like me, uh, you know, the the immigrant experience, that thing of like uh, crossing cultures, of having to figure out a new system and having to figure out how to make your way in it is really, really helpful for something like entrepreneurship. And it's just, you know, obviously first generation, even second generation immigrants, but first generation in particular are overrepresented in uh, people who go into entrepreneurship, people who get through. There's probably some resilience factor of having gone through that means you're able to cope with the more of the uncertainty and the being an outsider and all that kind of stuff. And then secondly, there's probably just the skills of like working something new out that, that are helpful. And I would argue actually, you know, medicine prepares you for that as well in some way, because you just do so many different things that you have to have to work them out. But maybe not just the risk-taking element is, is less present in medicine. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I grew up, um, I'm Sri Lankan Tamil. I grew up in a um, very kind of uh, uh, ethnically mixed community in, in northwest London. And, uh, but quite a few of my friends were also uh, of uh, South Indian background, so, so South Indian and, and, and Sri Lankan as well. And they were, I guess what you, they are now, I guess what would be called computer scientists, but like at the time, uh, they were just working on doing stuff with computers that their dads had bought. And so I spent 
pretty much all my childhood doing not particularly kind of cool things um, uh, on every general, like from BBC, Micro, through uh, Ataris, through to uh, P- PCs, uh, and then getting involved in some of the software stuff. And actually a lot of creative, like digital cre- digital creativity was something I got into like way before uh, medicine. With, like, That's amazing. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that was, yeah, that was my, that was my thing. And I didn't really think that that, you know, I didn't do that in any intentional way, but really, I think, James, if I was to kind of isolate two things, it would be those that led to, I mean, medicine gives the context, right? Because obviously we do stuff in healthcare, so it's much more efficient if you understand medicine. But the, the other two, I think, are kind of constitutional factors, like which I can't really claim credit for. Like The first is just having that experience of, of translocation. And then the second one is basically just like it being very familiar and something I really enjoyed to like make stuff with uh, engineers and just hanging out with them, doing stuff. And that, honestly, that is really, that's the non-official answer to where Wellframe came from. We were just a student group, in a student group at MIT. We'd got a research grant from Google in 2009 to develop uh, software on uh, Android, which had just actually, I mean, uh, a lot of people don't know this. Android was actually acquired by Google from um, uh, a startup who had an idea of like, well, these cell phone things are probably going to be big. Why don't we build like there's going to be a, a PC, sorry, there's going to be a lockdown uh, operating system type approach. How about we build an open source one and then people would use it and then more people would use cell phones. And that was like not a particularly good business idea uh, back in 2006, I think it was when they when they when they when they when they did it. It was Andy Rubin. Um, uh, but it was acquired by Google and Google saw that vision and then they gave educational grants to universities i don't know which ones they gave it to but, but, but they gave some to mit and we really we came up with this idea of like could we use cell phones to um upskill community healthcare workers in developing countries who were like doing these like chronic disease management type protocols and we were like well i i was i was the clinical guy i was like well i know how to do chronic disease management protocols i don't know how to make software but I'm sure we can figure that out. And then we just worked with just world-class engineers. Like the head of Android was on our team. I mean, she wasn't the head of Android at the time. She was a student, but Kat. And then RJ is like one of the principal engineers at Search at Google. Like so world-class engineers. And just we just sat in, hung out, sat in, in yeah, different cafes and bars and our houses and just built what, what was called SANA. And that was an open source software project. And our insight, me and two other engineers who joined the group who were students, uh, who were very similar to the people that I grew up with, honestly. Like, um, they uh, um, uh, was that, well, what community healthcare workers could be doing in developing countries, very of managing diseases in between, you can probably see where this is going, right, in between visits after discharge, is very similar to what patients should be doing or can be doing in economically developed scenarios. And so... We got together with my co-founder uh, and our CEO, Jake, um, who was working at what was uh, one of the early, it wasn't really a digital health company, it was, it was called uh, uh, RunKeeper, which was, uh, I don't think most people have heard about it now, but it's the first generation of like run tracking uh, companies. And it got acquired by ASICS, um, I believe, and he was a product manager there. But um, so we got together, he was really interested in like doing something like that, but actually in the healthcare system. And I, me and the other guys were really interested in building this software for patients in the US. And the confluence of those um, is what became uh, Wellframe back in uh, like 2011. And then we started doing things in 2012. But um, 
I could carry on because obviously there's like 10 more years of the story, but I figured that'd be the whole podcast if we did. Well, I don't mind, mate. It makes my life a lot easier if you just want to talk for the next 38 minutes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I could do it. I, I, ideal. Yeah. However, I do have questions for you. It's, it, it's a super interesting background, man. And like, you, you drop, like, name dropping left, right, and center. Like, you very quickly glossed over MIT research grant from Google you know something via public health there's there's so there's so much here but the first thing i want to talk to you about because i think this goes right back to the beginning right is you you mentioned a really good word when it comes to careers you said the word intentional or in fact non-intentional and i think that's a really interesting concept when it comes to careers because you were somebody the same as me that had an atari and played Dig Dug and Frogger and like all these things, right? And you end up taking the thing apart and seeing like, what does this do and what does that do? And like, the, and you're hanging out with people that were at the time computer scientists and you, you had no intentionality about that being part of your career. You just followed it because it was your interest. And I think there's so much to that that now when I think about what I do, like design and videography and all this stuff that I do have at Stars, all this was just a hobby, like, way back when and that you've just sort of kept up with your hobbies to a point i can't quite integrate tennis into my career quite yet i'm not quite good enough but again it's just a well, hobby that you, that you do and you sit well <laughs> maybe in the future who knows yeah. just be a tennis <laughs> coach um that'd be the dream but anyway there's something there about right non-intentionality when it comes to just finding your way through in a career and i think you do these things that you know you, you well for, certainly for me like i felt like i had to i felt like you weren't meant to enjoy the day job you had to go and study medicine even though you didn't quite enjoy it and you had to then become a doctor and do it every day nine to five or worse because you felt like you had to and your hobbies were just sort of things you did on this side but i tell you what that duality of having holding those two things of like the thing that was a struggle but was giving you a solid career and also the hobbies they have merged quite wonderfully towards the end because you're the medic that can also do these things and I don't know, the, the, being non-intentional about where your career is going and actually just following your interests can lead you, you're a perfect example, to some really, really interesting, incredible places. Yeah, thanks, James. I mean, that's a really interesting point you're making. Okay, so, so, so I would say a few things, right? So I think, like, what you call non-intentional is also, I, I think what you're also saying is, like, just being authentic. Because, like, Ge- yes, you know, genuine, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah, exactly, genuine, authentic. And I think there's definitely... Um, uh, you know, I think that's it's, it's easy to say, right? And I think everyone listening would uh, would either believe now or at some point have been told, you know, just kind of be yourself. But exactly as you say, most people when they're following their careers don't. And so the question, of course, is why? And part of it, I have to say, having been on kind of, you know, both sides of this um, in my life, like uh, just having an economic buffer and being connected into networks. And so you mentioned that earlier with your background, being in London, you know, for me being here in Boston in the academic community. And that's like that social capital, as well as like the real capital of having some amount of savings to take care of the immediate needs, just is such an advantage. And not everyone has access to it. And of course, you know, that's where like policy should come in, the kind of work you've been doing with like the NHS promoting in, um, innovation, like. That's why that's really important because, like, you're giving people who didn't don't have it otherwise that social capital, um, and you know the broader value of education and social structures to give them some of the, the, the economic ability to take risks. But I don't think we do that well in, well enough in the UK. I mean, I mean, certainly there's people uh, like you and many other people you work with who are addressing that. But 
I think that I have to say, having kind of spent a, over a decade, well, three decades in the UK and one here, um, uh, is done much better um, uh, here for some people. Definitely not for everyone. Gains are not in any way evenly distributed, and there's a ton of work to do with uh, social inequity. But um, if you do have the fortune of being able to get into those networks and have the immediate needs taken care of, it is definitely possible to be your um, authentic self. And that's certainly been my experience, the kind of so-called American dream. But, you know, I think there's a more modern critique of that, which is correct, which is that that is not the, that's, that dream is not available for everyone. Um, uh, and, you know, there's a whole kind of discussion around that, which, go, which obviously goes way beyond health tech. But, but I think the, the point you're bringing up is a very important one for clinicians uh, or people working in leadership of healthcare organizations, many of whom I know, because, you know, I speak to them and, 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 and know many of them, feel that, that finding that authenticity, they've kind of got lost in it, that's kind of got lost in the mix. Um, and it's definitely worth taking your point uh, very seriously, but practically what to do about it, I guess maybe we can move on to that in the rest of the discussion. Yeah, definitely. And in order to get us there, you tell me what takes yeah. a GP in Harlston yeah. to the to, to the US and pursuing, as you say, the American dream. <laughs> American dream. Well, I mean, I don't know if it was him, the American dream that did it, but, but 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 really, what it was is like. I mean, I mean, I mean, I think the most interesting thing in medicine is public health because I just think it's you know I think like if you define and this is actually a lot of work that we're doing at the moment on the academic side of what I do is um, you know like what is public health right? Is it like hygiene and inspecting like uh, kitchens and restaurants or is it uh, sanitation or is it vaccination campaigns or is it like building technology uh, and building technology companies or uh, managing healthcare systems or looking at prevention or uh, analytical methods for looking at like complex science. Of course, it's all of those things. And that, that I believe just makes it just fundamentally interesting, both like molecular and planetary in scale um, uh, at the same time. And so that I, it's really that, it's that interest. That was always, I found it interesting before I went into medicine even, I mean, I didn't know very much, but but what I read, I found interesting. And then through uh, medicine, and then it gave so much significance to like, you know, it's clear if you look at like the US healthcare system versus the UK, say, and it'd be a good example for, for, for the listeners, um, uh, much more spent, much worse outcomes, uh, much more technology, arguably, or as much technology, I think anyone would agree. Uh, so there's something else in the organization, right, and the external factors. And that figuring that out and changing it is, I, I believe, is public health. So, so it's really an interest in that. Then uh, HSBH, Harvard School of Public Health, which was really for me, and I hope everyone, you know, do a lot of teaching there now. And we're doing a, a ton of stuff. We're actually starting a digital health course uh, next year. Um, is um, uh, was like just essentially like a safe space or a sandbox to kind of deliver how to, to sorry, to, to, to kind of figure out how to be authentic, uh, I guess, as, as you would say earlier. And, and I'm sure this was your kind of intent behind the NHS accelerator as well and, and, and the other things that, that you've done. It's like you've got to create that space to like for people who don't necessarily, let's face it, know what they're doing because they're doing it for the first time, to like figure it out and figure out authentically or uniquely what they can bring to, um, to uh um, entrepreneurship, which at the end of the day is kind of exactly what you say. It's an expression of the people that do it. And um, 
we you know i just was talking to some students yesterday and i said like yeah just never forget that like this stuff is made by people for people and that like you know that those elements really matter and our experience of wellframe is it's very much an expression of the interest that like jake and i had and his kind of complementary part of this founding story based on his experience which are very different he grew up in rural massachusetts and was a uh, kind of um uh, what's the word like a, a varsity rower and all that all that kind of stuff um uh, whereas i'm definitely not anywhere near a varsity athlete but but it's um uh but that it's though the fusion of those things coming together and a common interest in the in the public health vision and i think all companies that i mean anything that people work on for a decade there has to be this like common value base right i mean it's kind of as simple as that in a way but all companies that make it to like that kind of time it's because like the kind of identity of the founders um and their experience in it which is why i'm super grateful and i've got to say impressed that you're asking these questions because we typically don't get asked them uh, yeah that's awesome man it, it's it's yeah it's it's such a good story and i totally agree with you you know that the companies will end up personifying the founders almost um because you're right complementary skills and complementary backgrounds can be incredibly important to arrive at something that actually works you know i i i would say i am regularly humbled by my co-founder you know when you just think everything is right or of course you do it they're your views they're your opinions that's the way you see the world that you you can just think something is the right thing to do and the right way to go until you're presented with a completely different view based on that person's background to this point based on that person's life to this point their experiences their hopes dreams and where they've arrived at you know it, it, it's it is it's incredibly incredibly interesting to me but you know in our game in the communications game now that's why companies need a mission they need a vision they need you know that north star pretty much figured out to know that everybody is going to pull in the right direction because as you will know in scaling a company like there's only so long that you as the founders have got significant pull before you're outnumbered by the people that you employ you know so you know getting that stuff down yeah i mean that 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 brings me yeah, onto I... wellframe quite nicely i think because i'm i'm interested in the early journey here i'm interested in how did you go from that idea that you've articulated into what was the reality? What was an MVP? What were initial sales conversations? Yeah. I mean, what were you selling at that point? Yeah, How yeah. different is it now? You know, talk to me about that early yeah. journey through founding and starting the company. Yeah, sure. Okay, so so um, that's an excellent question. So, I mean, you know, I think just to kind of give everyone a view of of, of what Wellframe does. So, so um, so that Wellframe, we're we're broadly working in the area of, of digital care management. I mean, in fact, you know, I think we, we kind of have um uh we're one of the first companies in this organ in in this area and and we're um uh, we're certainly the largest so that would that would be you know so it, it kind of needs a bit of uh unpacking the us healthcare system to understand but i can also explain how it works and would work in the uk as well or in a kind of uh, a, a more um government organized health system so uh basically like in the us you have health plans health plans um have patients, say a million patients for, for a large um, uh, regional uh, health plan. And out of those patients, just like in any population of anyone that's in, uh, insured for anything, there's a small number of people who have all of the need, who have, a, who have sorry, a disproportionate amount of the need. Um, and that's the same for health insurance um, in the US. So um, health insurers are managing large populations, a small section of which, maybe 10%, uh, accounting for like 40% of the costs 
those are typically people with like long-term chronic conditions, more than one of, who have multiple clinicians, multiple appointments, multiple medications, multiple areas where things can and do go wrong. Um, so there's an in industry of care management, which is basically historically nurses in call centers who work with those people uh, to help them manage their conditions. And previously they would phone them up once every six months or so and ask them if they're doing this and taking that and looking at the other thing and then uh, uh, recommend some things or have a discussion, close the conversation and then have it again in six months. And given, as we discussed before, right, the top, right, James, the, um, you know, people are doing half an hour of work a day, you know, one half an hour phone call every six months means that for the other 179 odd days, they've basically got nothing. Um, so uh, we, that is the area that Wellframe kind of exists in, but like the kind of elevator pitch style of Wellframe is we work in digital care management and we help um, uh, risk-bearing organizations, health plans and risk-bearing provider organizations, clinical groups, uh, to um, improve the management of these chronic conditions by upskilling their clinicians and giving and engaging their patients and giving those patients um, uh, something you know that uh, makes them feel connected and cared for uh, and gives them a set of recommendations that based on their condition or combination of conditions tells them what they need to do and look out for on any given day to make the most of their health, collects all that information and then helps the health system respond in real time to what they need as opposed to the norm which is the health system expects you to like shoehorn all of your needs into like whatever supply is possible whenever it's possible. Um, so that's all obviously enabled by technology, um, which is, so we are a software company, uh, but very much kind of public health and clinical roots. Um, uh, yeah, the two of us that have, come, that, that have built Wellframe, obviously with the team, uh, come from, uh, both come from public health uh, backgrounds. Um, but yeah, so the path into that is um, uh, yeah, is is kind of not necessarily obvious, and and like how do we get that from that seed of an idea into something that scales? So if you look at where we are now, there's like 35 million people covered um, uh, by plans using Wellframe, and you know that's over 10 percent of the of the U.S. population. We work with uh, half of all health plans in the U.S. Um, use um, use uh, um, our Wellframe customers. Um, and uh, the way that it works with patients is that um, an individual patient, so health plans call them members, um, so maybe it's, it's better if I use that term. So, so um, uh, a member of a health plan, if they have a high level of need, uh, will get offered Wellframe for free by their health plan to help them manage that condition. They'll be connected to a care manager, who is now a digital care manager, who can help that patient 24-7, 365, for anything they may be going through. And actually the way that it works is that what those people really need, what all of us really ultimately need if you're going through this kind of stuff, is basically just knowing, having the confidence of feeling that someone is like looking out for you basically. And if something goes wrong, then they're there to like, you know, kind of capture you and all that stuff and they care about what you say. And you know, that's the kind of clinical, that's why it's the magic of uh, the utility of medicine for, for most patients, right? And, and so, um, that's what Wellframe offers, and we're able to we're able to do it because we've done a load of engineering to basically be able. And this was the work that I was doing before, and so that's the MIT connection. We were doing a load of work. This was my kind of research interest of like what is the common logic structure in clinical protocols, 
and we used a ton of stuff. Actually, Nice just did such great work that I used a lot of their stuff to like figure out what is going on here, and then we just built um, a, a logic structure that we were then able to build in software for clinical protocols, such that we could like combine them computationally and then delivered them. So for a patient, they may have like five or six conditions. They just get one checklist of all the things they need to do and look out for on that day to make the most of their health. And then there's biometric tracking and there's a chat channel and there's reminders and there's a content library and all that stuff. But it's all together in this experience. And whatever your combination of conditions are and however they may change and whatever number of conditions you have as the patient, it's still the same one uh, mobile app. So then, you know, iPhone, Android and all that stuff. But uh, I hope that makes sense. It does. And the interesting thing for me with that explanation is how many, kind of how many problems you're solving. I mean, in part, like people talk about the interoperability issue, right? As if it is just one issue. It's not, it's, it's, it's so many issues, but it seems like the way that you've described solving that problem is pretty epic. Um, and I'm not a technologist, so logic structures doesn't mean anything to me, but it sounds cool. And it sounds like things talk to each other. And that sounds like it solves the interoperability issue to the tune of being then able to layer on top of it with things like, as you say, reminders or content libraries and all these things that are, you know, you can, you can name a hundred startups for any one of those I don't want to be pejorative here, but smaller issues or issues that then contribute to the larger issue. So there are a lot, there are a lot of kind of point and shoot, just like, you know, I'll solve that problem, I'll solve that problem. But seemingly there's always been this need for this this layer on top or on top or underneath or however you want to describe it. But the connective tissue between all this this stuff that you just know with unlimited lines of code oh my goodness, this problem could just be solved. Like, why do I, you'll know as a clinician, like, why do I have to write down the patient number a million times in a day? Like, surely it should just be at the top of his paper. It should just be on the thing that I don't have to, why have to write the name of a patient so much during a day? Like, this is not a good use of my time. Or like the blood results. Why do I need to write the blood results in the discharge summary or the this or copy them from here to the notes? Like, so much of this is frustrating. But you you tell me, I mean, is have you have you just solved the interoperability issue? Well, um, uh, well, okay. So, 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 I think a lot of issues. Sorry for such a reductive question, by the way. <laughs> I really no, 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 it's fine, down it's fine, for it's fine. No, 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 no. This no, 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 is a very important question. So, so I think if one is looking at anything in healthcare and you think this is dumb, why is this happening? Right? Hmm. Sometimes it could be because someone just hasn't invented something. There are certainly those in, uh, times, and if you feel that strongly then I strongly recommend that you do that. And um, if you want help in thinking about it, then uh, con- you, know, you can find me on, uh, um, uh, on, on, the, on Twitter or whatever and, and drop me a line. But, it's, um, uh, but most often, I would argue, it's because of incentives and, and misalignment thereof. And re-engineering incentives is a, is a totally valid and underappreciated form of engineering. And any company that makes it, including us, we spent the first few years just thinking about the technology, the first first year maybe, just thinking about the technology. And we went really deep on that. I mean, there was three founders, like there was, a, we, we had two computer scientists, uh, Jake's got a PhD in Epi, and then me, who's, I don't know, somewhere in the middle, I suppose. And like, we um, just spent the time thinking about what is from first principles, the solution to this problem. And we had the luxury of being here around other people who were thinking about not necessarily that, but the instrumental approaches and technologies towards doing that. 
uh, and we were just super interested in it. So we um, uh, so we learned. But the second bit of it was really what has led to the growth of the company and why, you know, I, I think it's behind every company. So I don't I don't just want to talk on our behalf. Is that like what is the incentive network and how do you re-engineer it? And the thing that lets you re-engineer it is the unreasonable advantage of a product that solves a problem well from first principles and in a, and, and in a way that delights users, like the, the basics of, um, of this. But like in, in basic, I mean, what you said, I think is absolutely critical, right? Like if you look if you, from, through that lens, if you look at like um, a patient's experience, right? Like, like we all know, like if you look at like any of my previous patients when I was a GP that they've got um, six different conditions, say, right? They've got ischemic heart disease, diabetes, COPD, uh, they may have like an early stage of, say, prostate uh, um, cancer. They've maybe had something kind of traumatic with like the broken a leg or something in the um, in the past. They've got some family issues. They've got a number of these things going on at the same time. Now, in the scenario where each one of those has an individual digital health solution, there's no way. There was never any way that I could see that like a patient was going to download more than one application and use them independently with like different user experiences and different sign-up processes, just absolutely no way. And secondly, even if they did, there's no way any healthcare organization anywhere in the world is going to be able to incorporate that. So like the interoperability problem, which I would argue like on a technical point of view is 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 very much solved. So it's clearly solved in other industries where you have like in retail, for example, it's like it's all different systems in, in, you know, who are seeing different elements of the customer talking quote unquote i interoperating with each other um so and the infrastructure to do that in public cloud all of that technology is, is available now it's the incentives of healthcare organizations that aren't necessarily aligned or where they are for example in socialized systems like the us it's the skill to take on this kind of project um in a way that like delivers a result for a reasonable cost that, that um that, uh, uh, that hasn't been present but it's not. It's it's basically a user problem and a incentive problem. Like you know, people are just the health people running the healthcare systems need to think with the user in mind and think about what experience is actually realistic. And we were really clear that like we could probably get people to download one app if it was in the context of care and it was endorsed by their clinician and they were getting access to a real clinician through it, and that they would keep doing it. And that's exactly the experience of Wellframe. You know, we've had people going on for like three years, some of them. Um, and the average ten years around six months, um, uh, uh, but we definitely, if we take and solving a problem where you have that one app that does all of the conditions and takes care of making sure that like there's no duplication. Obviously, you know, to get a little bit technical, like someone's got ischemic heart disease and diabetes, they've got the same long-term endpoint. You're trying to reduce the probability of a macrovascular event, uh, like uh, you know, like a, a, a thrombosis. Um, they're both so both of the management protocols, even though they're very different conditions, are pointed towards that. So lots of the interventions are therefore similar. So we had to build in the logic to do that, and we really enjoy. I mean, I really enjoy that stuff, and and we re, uh, working with computers just goes right back to the top of the conversation, James. So I'm very grateful that you asked that question. It's like that working with engineers to figure these things out is super fun, and anyone who's listening, who's in medicine, who like who's kind of thinking well i know some stuff and like if you can find some situation like the accelerators james was running or elsewhere wherever else you may be in the world to do that into interdisciplinary multidisciplinary working around clinical problems is unbelievably rewarding um, but it's basically just coming back to the thing it's 
um, uh, thinking about the user, and we take that very seriously at Wellframe and build something that they can actually use and they get utility from and makes them feel cared for and is easy, uh, uh, but goes across their conditions. And then also rooting this in incentives that make sense for the organization. So it actually has you know this return on investment. And I can go into what that, that, that is if you like. I'd love there's so there's so much I want to ask you about. I don't know if, if we've even got enough time, but I mean, there's there's so much that you mentioned, right? About you know healthcare is about feeling cared for, that being the magic of healthcare. I think that's such a good point. I think talking about incentives, I mean, I'd be super interested in uh, in where you think the responsibility lies there as well. I think I will ask this question actually. Where do you think the responsibility lies? Because in in part you've talked about you talked about healthcare providers. You've in, sort of alluded to policy perhaps and perhaps that's a governmental thing but also you as an entrepreneur have grasped that responsibility and taken it on yourself and wanted to build something that gives you that leverage to change incentives for yourself so i mean there's three groups there even of entrepreneurs policy slash government and providers i mean wh- where is the responsibility here and the reason i ask the question is because like I want to see more change. I want to see more innovation. I want it to be ten a penny in a safe way to to, to trial and, and and this stuff. But I know that the the risk that's born for anybody that tries to innovate, particularly in the UK, you know, they bear that a lot of that risk personally. You know, they might lose their job if they try and innovate themselves out of a hole. But you know, no one gets fired for McKinsey. You know that kind of thing. You know, it, where, where's the responsibility? How do we change this, Trishan? How do we change it? Yeah, no, that's cool. That's another very important question. So, so let's use kind of the, the, the Wellframe example to answer that question, right? So, so, so the way that we look at it is this. So like if you're, a, if you're a health plan, you have a population of people. So say if you have a million members, say roughly for a million members have a budget in terms of medical spend that costs there roughly around a billion dollars. I mean, these are kind of rough, rough numbers. It depends on age and uh, other factors uh, to do with how sick the population is. But... Um, say you have that billion dollars. Now, of course, the, the historical way of looking at health plans here in the US, and it's the way the government, governments look at things as well, so governments are effectively a national health plan, is that like, well, there's something that used to historically, it's a terrible term, used to historically be called medical loss. Uh, and now it's, it's, and there was something called the medical loss ratio. And now it's called, I think it's called health benefit ratio, which is a much, much kinder term. But the medical loss would be that you collect some amount in premiums and you give some amount out in like essentially fee, uh, to pay clinicians for their provision of care. Uh, and what's remaining, you subtract what you do for your own administrative expenses and the remainder is retained profit or yep. something similar if, if, um, if you're a non-profit. So the way that we look at it, and this is kind of very much the idea of uh, uh, Jake, my, uh, my co-founder and our CEO here, is that... Um, uh, rather than rather, could we turn that on its head and look at it that you've got a billion dollars to invest in this population, and if you're going to invest it and you want to invest it to improve the population's health, then like what interventions would you invest in? Like if you're a rational investor, would you really spend eighty-five uh, percent of that on like uh, cl- clinicians and and expensive care, some of which is duplicative, some of which is just simply because things weren't coordinated up, someone left a hospital, they got confused between visits and then had a complication. And maybe you would, maybe you go to 85%, but I think most people would think, well, maybe if we could take 1% or 2% out of that, which is a huge figure, of course, given that we're starting with a billion dollars here, and uh, we could put that into something else that might basically actually 
I wouldn't even take one percent to take point one percent and and put it into something that might reduce the cost by say like one percent or so, then of course that's a rational thing to do. And like those changes at the margins, which is where like uh, um, these these technologies, these approaches will will work. And so I mean that's very much the way that we see it. So health plans they want to basically they have to make the numbers add up at the end of the day. They want to invest in the health of their populations before the only tools they had was basically changing reimbursement uh, settings, essentially, um, uh, makes kind of the um, medical system seem like robots, which is not, not, not all I intend, but like just, just changing the reimbursement rates to like change incentives in the medical system, which definitely works, but very expensive, very long range. And they can't do anything to work with patients directly. Like the NHS has very blunt tools for working with like individual patients. They can change how much GPs get paid or the different incentives for hospitals. And that stuff definitely works, but it takes a long time and it's expensive and it takes joined up policy. Here, of course, in the US, it's even more difficult because their health plans are largely um, independent. They're definitely independent of the providers. Um, so what we're basically arguing is that we like given how the incentives work, you're sitting in, in, in a pay issues and looking at you have this this money and you want to make this population better and you want to do it by improving experience and putting the member at the center of things and being more consumer focused and all that stuff we basically help you do that and loads and plans historically 10 years ago would be like well yeah that's nice but uh maybe in the future when we're like all got flying cars and stuff that's what we'll be thinking about but then that's radically radically changed like and that really is the growth of world frames the company is like the two, the second half is basically uh, us getting us being much better at figuring out the incentive side, but also health plans coming to us and saying, "Okay, we're working with you on this digital care management, managing high risk people. We want to offer this to everyone because, like these kind of technologies, where we can work directly with patients and we can uh, uh, help them proactively, we can do it at scale, where like each additional member is a single digit amount of dollars." to take care of in this way and where the benefits can be in the hundreds of dollars up to like $600 per member per month. We, we have a study on uh, on that. It's just such an obvious investment that, um, that one should make. But that is not, it's a very different articulation to kind of what we discussed earlier in the conversation, right? Which is all about uh, patient and clinical processes and like the, in, the, the uh, uh, technical infrastructure and why it's interesting from that point of view. And I think those two things, the marriage of those two things is what makes, uh, it's certainly what's made Wellframe work. And when I'm an investor and looking at other things, it's also what I'm looking for. You kind of just, and that's hard. And that's why you have to work in teams. Uh, that's why, um, you know, yeah, that's simply it. You just have to work in teams. There's no one person that can do all of that stuff. Well, I haven't met them yet. If you're listening, then oh, contact me. I, I love it. Trisha, it's been such a, it's such an eye-opening episode for me anyway, just to, to, un to I mean, understanding business models in health tech is one thing. To understand it across the pond is another. Um, I think the way that you've articulated that, particularly around those incentives, has been amazing. I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed learning about that. And my final, final, final question would be, before we go, obviously taking a health tech company to exit is no mean feat. Um, there's a lot of, there seems to be a lot of market consolidation going on at the moment. There seems to be a lot of acquisitions, acqui-hires, a lot of you know big players getting bigger and small players getting gobbled up. What what's your advice for someone building a health tech company now? What what have you learned about taking a company to exit, and what would you impart to the to the founders listening? Well, I, I, I think the most important thing to keep in mind is like don't 
try, don't aim for taking it to exit. Um, and um, of course, that's on, on, on your mind, right? And, and it has to be because really your job as a founder is really, it's, it's just two things. And it's uh, just really important to bear it in mind. Like, so that, that the first thing is to achieve the mission. Most missions in healthcare can't be definitively achieved because they're so broad. Like, you know, so, so, so ours is to make sure that every person reaches their health potential. Which is great, but every I mean, six billion people in the world. There's all kinds of issues going on. Like that's, but that carries on as your north star, and is something that all of us can get behind, and, and still motivates me today as much as it did 12 years ago. Um, and the second thing is to create a return for the investors. And so, you, like you, because we have investors, the whole mod. So you have to be aware that, like, what you're, you have to be kind of very disciplined that what you're doing is adding value for shareholders. That's the model, and that's the same for public companies um, as well. So like that's your duty. And so I think the first thing is in getting anywhere is keeping those two things in mind and using those to be very critical of like what it is you're doing and is it achieving both of those ends. Sometimes you might achieve one and not the other and there's sometimes trade-off, but you typically, most of the things you do, you want to be um, uh, achieving both. So don't start with like getting acquired, just start with like doing that job well. Um, now, of course, sometimes the second one of make, creating a return for shareholders necessarily involves an acquisition because that's the optimal path but to get there you just have to like you have to have those right values uh, first and then it's essentially just build measure learn there's no magic to it whatsoever and I off, uh, with the uh, with the Harvard students I say this all the time is like basically like what the overriding kind of uh, uh, mystery or, or, or romance of this game is is that you're meant to have like a good idea and like that good idea carries you through. But really what it is, is you have an idea that's based on something you fundamentally hold to be true. But that, but that idea is fundamentally flawed. It's just flawed in just massive ways and in so many different dimensions that most people will look at that and say, well, yeah, cool, but there's no way I'm doing that. It just doesn't make any sense. And what, and what the founder's job is to through almost an infinite number of cycles of like building something to try and express that idea seeing if it achieves the result that you thought it would achieve if not why not therefore like then correct that thing according to like what you've learned do it again do it again do it again and do it again over an infinite number of times and then what you find and it basically doesn't really make sense unless you've experienced it is that a group of like the best academics in the world thinking for like five years in depth about how to solve this problem versus some hackers and people who know this method hacking away in an informed way, working with users, not just by themselves, like getting something out, learning from it, doing it again and again and again and again and again, and again with ridiculous amounts of energy and persistence creates a better result. And that's it. That's the, that's the, there's no other secret except that. But it's, it's hard and it's not for everyone. But, but if it is, if you are listening to this and think it's for you, and I'm sure if you listen to this podcast, you must already be interested in that way. Um, it's incredibly rewarding. Love it. So, so relatable, honestly, every single word. Trish and I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, honestly. Um, Thanks, James. I'm so glad to, so glad to have met you through this. Um, and yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm sure too. I'm sure we'll stay in touch because uh, there's, there's so much about what you guys are doing that I would love to pick your brain on further. Um, but for, for those people listening that might want to uh, get in touch with you uh, or indeed learn yes. more about Wellframe and what, what you're up to there, what's the best yes. way for them to find out more info? So Wellframe is, is, is www.wellframe.com. So that's fairly easy to, uh, to find out. Otherwise... Uh
if we're connected uh, already, uh, there's uh, there's LinkedIn or like feel free to, to to drop me a line or on Twitter. I'm Baseline Therapy um, uh, as well. So that's B A S S L I N E T H E R A P Y, and it's about music, Very not nice. not fishing. In case anyone was wondering. <laughs> Very nice, Trisha. As I say, mate, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Learned a huge amount. So glad our listeners got to hear from you. Thanks, James. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.